Hello and welcome back to What's Literacy. Today's episode is with JL Richardson, Canadian author and also founder and artistic director of Fold, the Festival of Literary Diversity. So you're going to hear a little bit about that on this interview, which is a debut interview for a team member here at Literacy Quebec, Jessica Leahy, who took to the mic. So well done to Jessica, and I hope you all enjoy. So yeah, I am really excited to be here today with Canadian author J.L. Richardson. Uh, J.L. holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Guelph and lives in Brampton, Ontario, where she founded and serves as the executive director for the FOLD, which is the Festival of Literary Diversity. Uh, Hi, J.L. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's so nice to be here with you. I'm uh, making my podcast debut <laughs> today. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, a little nervous, but also very excited um, to speak with you. Uh, we first heard you at uh, the Reading for the Love of It conference back in February, um, and we thought you were a really great speaker, and we really liked what you said about diversity and representation. To begin, um, I just kind of wanted to talk about the fold and what inspired you to create the fold and sort of its inception um, to where it is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been working on fold for about 10 years now, and uh, it feels like three, maybe. <laughs> like it feels very fresh to me still. So when I talk about, you know, we're in a few years, we'll have our 10th anniversary. That just seems wild. But um it started out um, as an idea that I had because I really love literary festivals. Um, a lot of people have maybe have never been to one, but they're just opportunities to sit down and hear authors talk about their writing and their work. And so um, I was really excited to go to festivals, but I started to see like some patterns as I went to these festivals. I started to notice I was often one of the only um black people in the room. Um, I was often one of the youngest. I was going, you know, in my late 20s, early 30s. Um, and so uh, I I was just sort of seeing absences as well on stage. I was seeing sort of a lack of diversity in terms of programming and types of books. And um, I decided in 2014 to start a charitable organization or a not-for-profit that would focus on underrepresented authors and storytellers, where I would really build a festival that began by thinking about who's missing, who's missing in festivals across Canada in particular, um, and how can I help folks like me, who are also perhaps from marginalized communities, find authors who might represent them or, or be able to like pour into their lives. Um, And what was interesting about that, too, is I started the fold in response to something that was happening in the States as well. Um, Around this time that I was going to these festivals and looking around, there was a festival in the States that had a um, release their roster and their roster was, you know, 95 percent white. Um, The one person who was BIPOC um, was not black. And so there was a lot of like uprising, not indigenous either. So there was all this, like these groups that were saying like what we're going through in everyday life is, you know, sort of chaos and injustice. And, um, then in these spaces, we're seeing our, our stories are absent as well. And so there was this movement for, we need diverse books in the States. And what was interesting about that movement is that, 
lots of people who were not from marginalized communities were also interested in finding books by authors from marginalized communities. So it kind of affirmed for me that it wasn't just a search I was on because I had miss been missing things in you know what I had learned and read in my childhood, but it was also people who just wanted to read more diversely. Um, and I think, you know, I always grew up reading people who didn't look like me because those are the books that were taught in school. Um, and I was thinking about like as a festival, how I can build a festival that are about people who look like me and don't look like me, people who have lived the things I've lived and who haven't lived, who've lived very different lives that I can learn from too. And I think that's, that's what I love about planning the Festival of Literary Diversity or The Fold. I love looking for stories I've never seen before or stories that just aren't getting enough conversation that are really amazing for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's amazing. Um, and I was also curious to know why you decided to host The Fold in Brampton, Ontario, as opposed to, you know, a big city like Toronto. Yeah, that's a great question. And I remember the first year we had the festival, um, one of my friends uh, who's in the publishing industry, he came to the festival and was kind of like, uh, he lives in Toronto. Toronto is about, depending on where in Toronto you are and where in Brampton you are, um, it's anywhere from about 30 to 45 minutes to to Brampton. Not far, we're right on like the main sub, uh, main, not subway lines, but train lines, main bus routes. It's not that hard. But for a lot of people, it is hard enough that they've never done it. And so there were a couple of people from Toronto who came out who were kind of like, oh, like this is also pushing our thought process and our conversations. Like how often are we expecting things to come to us or be set in the in the city and expecting people from the suburbs to drive in? How how different and important is it for us to drive out of the city or take transit out of the city and enjoy events in the suburbs as well? Um, and so I think it wasn't intentionally for that reason, but it did become a really great place uh, for conversation. Um, I chose Brampton because I live in Brampton <laughs> and because Brampton didn't have any festivals at that time that were intentionally designed to sort of draw people from across the country. We had a lot of local kind of regional celebrations and festivals and things like that. But I really wanted something that was like come into Brampton for authors, for attendees. Um, and uh, that became a really important part of the conversation as well. Brampton's a very culturally diverse city, but it's also a very socially conservative city. So there was a lot of uh, places in which the conversation needed to be pushed um, and certain ideas needed to be had and shared and talked about in Brampton, but also like culturally speaking, um, you know, I would say 75% of Brampton is BIPOC. Um, and so there are some really great spaces for authors to come into and kind of, um, especially for racialized folks to see themselves represented. That's great. Um, and then that kind of also makes me think about accessibility mm -hmm. um, and diversity. And and I was kind of wondering, because I know The Fold, um, I believe, is one of the first festivals, at least in Canada, to have captions um at all uh, at all of the panels all of you know for for all of the um the speakers and i was wondering in your opinion how do diversity and accessibility relate to one another i mean when we're talking about diversity and inclusion um accessibility is a critical piece in this in the topic um for me it's always been the hardest one in a lot of ways because um 
it is very difficult. It's probably one of the most difficult areas to find authors, especially authors who are um, in themselves diverse. So racialized folks within the disability community to speak and speak up on things. And that's a really important, that intersection is really important, not just to hear, I think it's important to hear from those in the disability community, but it's also to hear from those who are queer and disabled and black and disabled. And finding that diversity there is really, really important because there's lots of nuance. There's lots like I I wish I could like put it together articulately for the podcast, but there are places in which accessibility actually can come into conflict with one another. So, for example, if you um, are designing a space and you want to make it accessible for folks, um, there are people who need quiet sounds and there's people who might need loud or lights or something to help in direction. So there's all kinds of ways in which you have to think really deeply about these topics. And I think what most people do is they just decide it's too complicated, it's too difficult, I won't do it. And we've taken the approach from the very beginning <clears throat> that it is a difficult subject matter, it is complicated, there are often economic uh, challenges. So when we decided to have captions, that increased our budget by over 10 grand. Um, and that's continued to be a line item in both of our festivals. That's very important, but it's also like a significant cost. And so it's about understanding and building a festival where you start with these underrepresented communities and you start with supporting them. So captions, for example, at our in-person events, we have live captioners who type what someone on stage is saying and the words appear on a screen. And this is not the ideal solution for someone who is deaf, who communicates using ASL, um, but it is a solution that covers someone who is deaf and also covers someone who is hard of hearing. It also covers those who might be distracted and might not be able to focus on what's happening on stage. It allows them to not miss anything that's happening. So it was one of our, not a perfect solution, but a very helpful solution that helped the largest amount of people with one go. And these are the kinds of things that take us and have taken us years to kind of figure out implement and fund. And so I find it really exciting. I like those challenges. I like being asked by someone to figure out, you know, how can your festival be more inclusive for me or for my community or for this group? I love doing that and kind of working towards a solution. Um, but sometimes, you know, uh, it's tough because I think the situation for the disability community is always urgent. And I think people are always trying to dismiss it. And so they're trying to get away with doing as little as possible. And I, I, I and, and sometimes I have to do that too. I have to actively think, you know, we had a, an event at a library um, where the bathrooms weren't accessible. And so I think a lot of people just don't ask the question. And then when they find out, they're like, we'll just do one more event there and then we'll do it in a different place the next time. But we've made it a really strict policy to only do events and spaces that are fully accessible, bathrooms, entrances, space where the authors are going to be, the audience members. And so we actually had to move that event like a week before the actual event took place. And those are the kinds of things that are, are for me, have become really important to not do what everybody else does, which is take the path of least resistance, but do what what's right for the community as soon as I'm aware in the best way I can. Um, and so that's... That's, I, I love that about my job, to be honest. I do. I, I love, I always say, um, 
we will never be like a fully accessible space. I, do, I don't believe, I can't foresee a world in which anybody walks in and doesn't have to ask for a service. It's just automatically provided because it's it's very, that's, that's big. That's like multiple languages and all kinds of things that can get in the way there. But I love that knowing that I can't do everything, that every year I get to think about like, what can we do better this year? What, How can we approach this topic in a better way? And I love that that sort of keeps me on my toes all the time. My job's never quite done. And there's always like an evolution of inclusion that I can integrate into the following year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think what you said, especially about you know, accessibility always kind of being a work in progress and I guess never being perfect um, also sort of makes me think about um, writers Mm. who um, perhaps want to make their works more accessible or uh, more representative. Do you think that they're, um, for instance, let's say a, a writer who perhaps doesn't come from a marginalized community, do you think that how do you think they can, I guess, be uh, offer good representation in in their works, um, or make their works more accessible? Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a great question. How to make your work more accessible? How to make your stories more accessible? I think, first of all, write the story you're meant to write. Like, and really question, like, what do I bring to a story, and what can I write? I think there are some people who are like, this is trendy. I will therefore write this thing. And that's never a good reason to write a story. I think when you're inventing a world or when you're writing a story about a place, I think it's important to think about all the communities that are a part of that place and who are not part of that place. If you're in a town that is predominantly white or straight, I think it's important to ask yourself why, (laughs) you know, what historically has led to that, what, um, who might be like in the closet and why because of where they live, etc. And to really think about that in relation to your story. Um, I don't think you have to take on social justice issues, but you have to recognize that when you choose to set a story, um, all of these other things are happening underneath the surface. Politics are happening everywhere. In every neighborhood, in every community, there are politics happening. And if you write stories without thinking about the politics, I think that's dangerous, especially if you're not from marginalized communities, because you tend to perpetuate these myths. Um, But it's also important to think about how what you've seen contributes to what you might want to put in a book. So for example, you may have grown up in a community in which there were nannies, and maybe all of those nannies were from a particular community. If you are going to put a nanny in your story from that particular community, are you going to question the politics of that, the reasons why that happens? And it doesn't have to be overt, but like you need to be aware of it and you need to put some like something in there. Otherwise, you're perpetuating these stereotypes that can be very harmful. Um, And so I think those are the things that I'm always encouraging people to think about is like understand that politics, people are saying, oh, I don't want to be political. I just want to write a romance novel about like a happy, you know, straight white couple that gets together and falls in love. Great. But understand that there is a political nature to that story. There is a political nature to why that will be popular. And if you don't question that or include anything along those lines, you're perpetuating a problem, in my opinion. Um, I, I'm never one to say someone can write one story and someone else shouldn't or can't write it. I think publishers are, um, 
I would encourage publishers, all publishers, to really think about the stories that they're publishing, the kinds of stories that they're putting out there, who they're paying and how much, and the economics of the question that we ask ourselves at The Fold all the time, which is who's missing? Who are you making the most money off of? Who are you giving more money to in order to continue that sort of usually inequitable social system? Um, and how can you start to shift the balance? How can you start to like even out the playing field? Um, so there's sort of questions for the writer themselves, and then there's a question for the publisher who's publishing them. And just to reiterate, I'll say writers, be true to your story. Tell the story you're meant to tell, but be aware of the politics that contribute to it and don't, um, and try and push boundaries, try and push questions, try and challenge mindsets, you know, what would happen if that nanny was not from that community and was from a community that you've never seen a nanny from what might that look like if the politics aren't important then what does it matter if they're from this place or this place and if the politics do matter then why don't you address it in the book in, even if it's a one-liner and then for publishers thinking about what they're putting out into the universe who they're marketing we know that marketing a book is the number one determining factor for how that book is going to do in terms of sales it's it's like a huge part of it and so think about who you're putting your marketing dollars behind um and how you can start to you know um create more equity in that space as well yeah i i think that's great advice mm -hmm. <laughs> um and i speaking about you you had mentioned uh you know like a, a romance mm -hmm. uh book or a romance genre do you think there are uh genres that do a good job of being diverse and do you think there are or do you think there are genres that perhaps could uh you know are limited in representation what are what are your yeah. thoughts about that I think there are some genres that do better than others um in some ways like I think the great thing for me I wrote dystopia so my novel gutter child is a dystopia and what I love about dystopia is it allows you to kind of pull in and leave out whatever you don't want to leave or deal with. So if I'm writing a fantasy book and I don't really want to deal with race, I can make the characters blue and purple and pink. Like it really doesn't matter. <laughs> but for me, for Gutter Child, I wanted to kind of approach race, but I also didn't want it to be race as we understand it in this world where it's like black, white, etc. So I I tackled topics relating to race using different terms and terminology so that I wouldn't have to deal with what it means to be black in South America versus what it means to be black in England which versus what it means to be black in Canada. I just wanted to talk about like the the larger experience. So I think dystopia, fantasy, they tend to do a really good job because they're already recreating worlds and they're thinking about the problems that our worlds currently contain. That's not across the board. There's a lot of dystopias, especially the ones I read in high school from the eighties and nineties where, you know, all the characters are either white or presumed to be white or when turned into a film made to be white. Um, and so, so it's not perfect in that regard. I think romance has been, in some ways, one of the slowest to come along, but then it's also been one of the quickest to kind of like speed the ship up and get things going. So um, I think we're still looking at stories. Uh, many of them, um, even though they're racialized, they tend to be still very straight. <laughs> um, and I think that's changing a little bit here and there. Um, but I think publishers are still not quite sure what to do with it. I think when it comes to um, literary fiction, we're very comfortable with sad, traumatic stories of Black folks and racialized folks. And I think um, just the popularity of funny books, funny books where the characters are racialized, I think are, are definitely missing. They're lacking for me. 
Um, another area where you see a lack of representation that's actually quite concerning is in children's literature. A lot of children's literature written by Black writers, myself included, who is doing this very thing, are more nonfiction based. Um, and uh, you, there is almost no uh, picture book children's literature written about disability by folks who are from the disabled community. So these are stories that are really, really important because they're being written for children. And it's really, really important that the people who are living those lives are telling those stories, but also, and I'll use the example of, of Black writers, if we're only writing true stories, then the, the perception is that everything we do is very serious and very depressing and like people get this person, I just want a fun book. I just want a fun Dr. Seuss type book, right? <laughs> and so we have to like, publishers have to be very intentional about those kinds of searches to say, you know, let's look for a fun story, light, funny, written by a Black writer, um, a Black Canadian writer. Let's look for a fun story um, about disability or not by a disabled writer. Um, and let's look for those kinds of things so that um, disabled folks, Black folks, marginalized folks aren't just doing the work of educating and aren't just doing the work of like the heavy lifting, quite literally. Um, so those are places where I can see, you know, people are always saying everything's so much better. It's so much better than it used to be. It is, but there's so much more room to grow. And if you think about, I'm always very concerned about kids books in particular, because I realized my son probably, he's 14 now, probably never read a book by a disabled writer or a book about disability while he was in school. Um, and that, like, that's terrible, you know, like, that's terrible. Um, and so it's those kinds of things that I think we have to really be intentional about because kids literature has a short window with children themselves. Some adults read children's books, but the, the big marketplace has a pretty short window. So um, looking into those things and thinking about them and doing something about them on a rather urgent level is kind of my mission. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's an amazing mission, and I, I completely agree with you. Um, I think it's super important for young children to, you know, be exposed to and just read about different characters that may look different from themselves or have different experiences than themselves. I think that really breeds empathy, mm. um, which is super important. And I know that you've uh, written for adults, of course, The Stone Thrower, Gutter Child, um, but you also have written a children's book, and a, The Stone Thrower was also adapted into a, a children's book. Um, so I was kind of wondering, do you have a preference for writing for adults over children? Um, and also, what do you like about each, and what are the challenges that come with each? Mm. I definitely have a preference. I definitely prefer writing for adults. Don't tell the children. They don't tend to listen to these <laughs> podcasts, so that's good. <laughs> but I, I do prefer writing adult. Um, all of my children's books have come at the request of an adult <laughs> asking me to write the children's books. And I've enjoyed them. They've been fun. It's really amazing to work with an illustrator to write something and then to see an illustrator bring it to life is very special. And I think if I were to say one thing about sort of the advantage of children's books and picture book writing it's that it's that um, unless you happen to be an author and an illustrator not me um it's really exciting to pair up with someone who's like I love what you've written let me put some pictures to that I love it um it's also feels less alone the book goes out in the world and you're like yes okay we got this um so that's fun I also like working on children's books because they're shorter right so for a picture book you're looking at a thousand words or less 
So typically for the age range, I'm writing my picture books, it's like 500 to 1000 words. And I like that bite size amount of text. I like being able to read it over and over and over again, and really understand the rhythm of the story, I can almost do all my picture books like from memory. Um, because I've read them so many times. Um, but I do like fiction a lot. I don't know why I say this because it's, it is like torture. It is like someone scraping my arm with sandpaper. It is so painful at times. It is so hard, but something about the way my brain works is I'm just constantly looking for like a larger story. Um, even when I try to keep it tighter and tinier, like just larger, uh, concepts come out. The book I'm working on now, I just feel like I have too many storylines going on and I probably should like pull it back a bit, but I'm like, no, I need all of them. So I think that long prose for, you know, uh, young adults, new adults, fully adults, uh, that's kind of my sweet spot for, for writing. I think about all the, the ideas I have down the road and they're all adult works. So it's definitely my favorite. I see. Um, well, that's great. And um, sort of to switch gears, I believe that you're working on a sequel for Gutter Child. Um, and I wanted to know how that was going. And I hope it, you know, I'm sure it's it's been arduous. <laughs> but um, yeah, how how is the sequel going? I'm, I'm excited. Arduous is the right word. Um, <laughs> it, so writing a sequel is like good and bad. The good part mm -hmm. is the world's already created. The characters are like largely already created. So the struggle I had with Gutter Child was I had to like imagine a whole world and then imagine all the reasons why that world was that way. Like I just wanted to say some people have X scars on their hands. Some people have just one. This is why. But you had to go like deep, deep back in history and then tell this story. So I found it very um, difficult to get around the and to work with this um, world building and storytelling elements in the first book. Um, that being said, when you're writing a sequel, I feel this like immense pressure to satisfy the reader and to wrap up the story in a way that's like really complete this time. <laughs> this time, <laughs> the first time I was like, it is done, mostly because I'm very angry. I'm very angry at the world. I'm very angry at all of you. I'm just angry. I'm just angry. And so I ended it where I ended it and it was right. I love it. I love Gutter Child like in its entirety. Um, but there were some things that people were like, I, I want to know more about what happens. And so I'm in that stage now. And I think that, yeah, the big challenge is like, how do I satisfy the reader? How do I satisfy myself? Is this the right story? Um, am I telling it well enough? There's all new kind of pressures with this next book that I didn't feel with the first book. And I think that's the thing that, that worries me most, keeps me up at night sometimes. Um, and it just takes, it takes me so long. And while I try and get more efficient, with my editing and with the way I write, I find no matter what, I'm always taking a long time. Like I think I should just accept that each novel is gonna take four to five years. I figured that after this one, I was gonna write something more like, um, more thriller-esque, um, a little bit on the like dark, like mystery crime kind of, I, I watch enough Law and Order to write so many novels about crime. <laughs> I feel like the pressure to use that knowledge somehow. So um, I, yeah, I, I see down the road books that I know other people tend to write more quickly than like a dystopia, but I have a feeling it's going to take me just as long. I have a feeling it just takes me four to five years to write a book. 
And I just <laughs> embrace that. Yeah, I mean, the anticipation will just increase. <laughs> you think so, but actually, we just forget about you. It's fine. Fine. People forget about me. I don't. But yeah, no, I. It, it just process wise, it takes me a long time. I'm not a write every day, 3000 words type person. I will do mm -hmm. that at times. And then at times my brain will be so full of like things, thoughts, life, relevant, irrelevant, that I, do, I can barely move. So um, I have to like take time away from books as well. I kind of dip in and dip out. I'll read things, watch things and go back in. So um, four to five years minimum, I think is what I'm just going to stand on. Yeah, well, you know, everyone goes at their own pace, and um, I'm sure no one's going to forget about you. <laughs> um, yeah, well, thank you so much for uh, sitting down and speaking with me today. I really, really appreciated this talk um, and to sort of learn more about The Fold and, of course, your process um, as a writer. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. <laughs> and I also look forward to future talks of yours. Um, uh, here at Literacy Quebec, we'd love to uh, go to more conferences that you speak at in the future. So, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I'll just say, you know, if you're interested in Fold, you can find us at thefoldcanada.org. Um, and that's where you can find information about the festival. We also have a kids festival where we focus predominantly on Canadian um, um, children's works. And so that's the foldcanada.org forward slash kids. Our kids festival is coming up um, is every November and our adult festival is in May. Thanks again to JL for joining us on What's Literacy, and congratulations to Jessica for conducting an excellent interview, and we do hope that she joins us as a host here again on the podcast. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time. To call our free literacy helpline, dial 1-888-521-8181. The Literacy Helpline is a free service that provides information and support for tasks that require reading, writing, and or digital literacy skills. This service is for English-speaking Quebecers, and that number again is 1-888-521-8181.